Well, welcome again to Grace Bible Church's online service. That was a wonderful time of, of uh, singing with Bill. That, uh, just give us rich theology, rich theology of the, of the death, burial, and resurrection of and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, both on earth and now in heaven. Well, we hope you find our service encouraging this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll get to the sermon in just a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. We praise you. We pray that we would this you would use this, or you would use this um, time, this preaching, the the worship. Father, we don't know in the future who might see this. Lord, I pray that you would use it to to bring people to know you. That you would comfort the people who do already know you. You would comfort our body, the body of Christ, the Grace Bible Church, Gainesville. Lord, that you would encourage us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said earlier, um, so what if the Lord Jesus not raised? Let's uh, delve into that this morning, that question. We all love to hear a, a, a feel-good story of someone rising from certain destruction to uh, attain great heights. We love when someone who was once down and out wins the day. Over the past several weeks, the people of our country have faced great difficulty. You might say, you could say that we are down and out. Many have had their lives upended due to sickness due to job loss. I read, just read that 16.8 million Americans have lost their jobs uh, in the last three weeks. Some have even faced the death of a friend or a loved one or, uh, or it, that, they, that they know. One of the ladies in our church posted that a friend of hers had passed away this past week. And never in my lifetime have I, have I ever seen a church, our church, any church face Easter Sunday without a traditional church gathering and a church get-together afterward. Yet, right now, we have most churches in the United States are not able to physically gather because of this pandemic. Now, I don't want to dwell on those things. We've all heard the bad news enough. As a, as a country, even, we could use a bit of good news, right? We could use some news of victory. Love him or hate him, our president seems to understand that the American people need some good news. We need something to give us hope. He understands our love for victory against all odds. Just this past Thursday, he came out and said they predicted a big bounce in the U.S. economy as soon as we make it through this pandemic, as soon as we can all go to work. He believes that we will recover quickly. But as you may expect, there are those who disagree with the president's assessment of our potential. So if you're looking for hope in the president's words, then according to the naysayers, you shouldn't hold your breath. Really, you know, so much for rising out of the ashes. Our country's uncertain future is maddening for those who hope in this life only. Many of you know that I attended uh, the University of Arkansas and I love Razorback football. After I graduated, an in-state kid named Brandon Burlesworth walked onto the football team. And from grade school, he had dreamed of playing for the Arkansas Razorbacks. He worked hard and 
but he was not offered a, a scholarship, so he decided to walk on. During Brandon's career, his work ethic was legendary. He became an right guard prior to or during his senior season. He also was the first Razorback to complete his master's degree before playing his final game. And after, the, after he graduated, the Indianapolis Colts drafted him. He was a true rags-to-riches story, except that he wasn't. It wasn't a true rags-to-riches story. Eleven days after being drafted by the Colts, Brandon was on his way home after a visit with his teammates. He was a devout Christian and wanted to attend church with his family, but he never made it. He died in a tragic car accident. Brandon died in the prime of his life. Now, if you're an atheist, you believe that Brandon's life ended when his car careened into that oncoming truck. He lives on in our collective memories, but sadly, his life has ceased. We live in a cruel world, you see, and Brandon drew the short end of the stick. Now, if you're a Christian, though, you have faith in a much greater reality. You agree that Brandon's life, earthly life, ended on that highway, but he lives on in Christ. As a believer, Brandon is now with the Lord Jesus. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.8, when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. Now, this verse, though, is talking about our spirit. But what about our physical bodies, our soma in the Greek? Are these resurrected as well? Now, this question was the source of much confusion within the church of Corinth. They believed, that it, they believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. This was a basic tenet of the Christian faith. But they were struggling to understand the physical re resurrection, that is, of believers. From the beginning, the resurrection of Christ was a basic theme of the apostles' teaching. And Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were actually arrested for teaching that Christ had been raised from the dead. Yet some in the church at Corinth were teaching that believers were not, believers were not physically raised from the dead. Now this may have been caused by confusion with pagan philosophies and religion. Corinth was in Greece, and in Greek philosophy there was a system called dualism. This system taught that everything physical is intrinsically evil. The dualists were repulsed by the idea of a physical resurrection. In Acts 17, when Paul preached in Athens, they, they, they severely reacted to what Paul was preaching about the resurrection. As a matter of fact, Luke records that some of them even began to sneer. The church at Corinth may have been influenced by these uh, wicked philosophies. Also, there was a Jewish sect called the Sadducees who did not believe, who didn't believe in the resurrection. In Acts chapter 4, they, along with the priests, arre arrested Peter and John for preaching the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. This group may have been influenced by Jews in the Corinthian church. Uh, uh, may have, sorry, this group may have influenced the Jews in the Corinthian church. Paul wrote, then 1 Corinthians 15 to correct the church's teaching or to correct the church's doctrine of the believer's resurrection. Now we need to make sure that we understand that it's a, this is a corrective that Paul is giving. 
And in doing so, Paul gives powerful evidence for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. In the first 11 verses, he delivers five powerful proofs of Jesus's resurrection from the dead. I'll go through them quickly. In verses one and two, the presence of the church is the first powerful proof. In Matthew 16, Jesus promised that he would suffer and die for his church. He was the perfect lamb of God. He lived the perfect life according to the law of God. His death on the cross atoned for our sin, but his resurrection defeated the grave. This is the gospel. This is the gospel by which we are saved. But it's also the gospel through which the church has been built. It's the gospel that we hear and become a part or made a part of the church. And this gospel includes the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, the presence of the church proves that Christ has been resurrected. Paul's second proof is the scriptures. Put simply, the Old Testament foretold the death and resurrection of the Messiah. These scriptures were preached by Jesus and the apostles to show that the Messiah had to die and be raised. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, foretold of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The third proof in verses 5 through 7 that Paul uses is the testimony of the eyewitnesses, Jesus in his resurrected body. This eyewitness account is of the resurrection. Just listen quickly from verses 5 through 8. All who witnessed Jesus be alive and walking around. Listen to this. When he was alive, when he, after his death, after his resurrection, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And so we see that he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the, to the rest of the apostles. Then we see that he appeared to the 500 brethren, probably to them. Um, that, that's the Matthew 28, 19, and 20 passage. And then he appeared to James and then to, the, to all the apostles. All of these people were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Many of them suffered and died for their testimony. And for those who believe in conspiracies, a few might suffer and die for a lie, but not hundreds. And so this formed, uh, this formed a great and incredible truth, or proof, that is, of the resurrection, of the truthfulness of the res resurrection. Then Paul provides another of his great proofs. He says in verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he, born, he appeared to me also. Now, our church has been going through the study of Ephesians. And what we find is in a study of Ephesians that the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the ministry of the Apostle Paul forms another great proof of the resurrection. It is the fourth great proof of the, of the resurrection. Paul was not a part of the original group of apostles. He was an insider in Jerusalem, but he was an outsider to the apostles. This forms a powerful testimony of the truthfulness of the message. You see, Paul had everything to lose and nothing to gain about, about what he saw. As a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul was actually the ultimate insider in Jerusalem. 
Therefore, he had everything to lose. He was not a, he was not the original witnesses, so there was no profit in defending. Excuse me, in defending the twelve. Yet he suffered and died. He suffered. He was willing to suffer. He suffered and he died for the message of the gospel. And Paul received this message of the gospel directly from Jesus, not from the other apostles. This actually formed his fifth great proof of the resurrection from verses 8 to 11. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 to 11. Paul demonstrates the dividing line between the original brethren and himself. Paul wasn't around with the, with the other disciples during the, the Lord's earthly ministry, that is. The same gospel. That's the point. He didn't get some message from them, but it was an exact match. In verse 11, Paul says, we preach the gospel and you believe. It was the same gospel that, that the, uh, the original brethren, the original apostles had preached was the same gospel that had been given to Paul that he preached. And when they proclaimed this gospel, when they proclaimed the resurrection, uh, the people believed. Now, these five proofs form irrefutable evidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, including his resurrection. Just listen to Charles Spurgeon speak of these things. He says this, we have often asserted and we affirm it yet again that no fact in history is better attested than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It must not be denied by any who are willing to pay the slightest respect to the testimony of their fellow men, that Jesus, who died upon the cross and was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, did literally rise again from the dead, end quote. Now, having, having given these proofs in verses 1 through 11, Paul turns his attention then to prove the bodily resurrection of believers. And in verse 12, he makes his main argument. In verse 12, he says this. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised, Paul has already proven that from in verses 1 through 11. How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, what Paul is saying here is that, that you believe that Christ has been bodily raised from the dead. So what, what Paul is saying is you must then, to be consistent, believe that believers will also be raised from the dead. In this verse, Paul raises the question of why some at Corinth say there's no resurrection for believers. In effect, he's challenging their thought process. Put succinctly, it is inconsistent to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and yet say there is no bodily resurrection for believers. Therefore, Paul argues from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing that if we will not if we will not be physically resurrected, then Christ wasn't raised either. And if this were true, then it would be catastrophic to our faith. So Paul offers then six disastrous consequences if there is no bodily resurrection for believers. If there's no bodily resurrection for believers, then Jesus himself has not been raised, point number one. Look at your text. Look at verse 13. He says this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Beloved, Paul spent the first 12 verses giving irrefutable proof for the resurrection of Jesus. 
proof that can't be denied by believers. It's at this point that Paul argues that, it, that if we deny the future resurrection, our future resurrection, then we deny Jesus's. <coughs> his, res- his resurrection, as we've already established, has always been a part of the gospel message preached by the disciples. Peter preached this message in Acts 2.22-2.24. Listen to this. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, so this man, the Lord Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Then he says this in verse 24. He says this, but God, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. You see, Peter stood on the day of Pentecost. Peter stood up and he took his stand to preach the gospel to the people of Jerusalem. And he preached the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. The fact that Christ not only died at the hands of godless men on the cross, but he was also raised up again. And he put an end to the agony of death because it was impossible for him to be held in death's grip. Brethren, Peter and the other disciples never shrank back from preaching the message of the resurrection. They saw the risen Christ and they were willing to suffer and die for what they witnessed. They knew it to be true and they attested it to be real. They preached its authenticity. And Acts chapter 2, verse 25 to 31, Peter proved the resurrection from the Old Testament. Remember, we said that was one of the proofs, that the Old Testament proves the, or looked forward to the, to the resurrection. He showed that David was looking forward to one of his descendants sitting on the throne forever. And Peter asserted that David actually grasped that it was through the bodily resurrection that this would occur. The message of a risen Savior was proclaimed by Paul as well. In Romans 10.9, Paul asserts that the resurrection is central to our faith. He says this, that if you confess, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God what? That he raised him from the dead. In other words, being a believer and denying the resurrection of Jesus are completely incompatible. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul maintains that denying the bodily resurrection of believers is tantamount to denying the bodily resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus. In other words, this denial, denying that that the bodily resurrection of believers is equal to denying the faith. Beloved, the resurrection of Jesus is central to our faith. Put bluntly, if you deny resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you cannot be a believer. As straightforward as that sounds, this truth should be incredibly encouraging to those of us who believe. In Hebrews 11.1, the writer of Hebrews says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You see, our faith rests upon God regardless of tangible truth. Or proof, that is. 
but it is reassuring and it should be reassuring to the believer that God has provided irrefutable proof if you've been given the eyes to see it. I would argue that only those who remain dead in their sins can deny the truth of the resurrection. It is that clear. This leads us to the second disastrous consequence that there is no bodily resurrection for believers. Our preaching, number two, our preaching is ineffective. Look at your text once again in, in verse 14. He says, Paul writes, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. Paul and the other disciples had given their lives to preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had seen many come to faith in Christ. After Peter preached the gospel, which we just looked at earlier in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added to the church. After Peter's second sermon, uh, recorded in Acts chapter 3, Luke tells us that there were 5,000 men who were a part of the early church. Now, that's 5,000 total men, but what we see is, is that the church, through the preaching of the apostles, the preaching of the, the gospel by the apostles, the church is growing exponentially. Clearly, Peter and the apostles' preaching was effective, and it included preaching a resurrected Savior, that Christ was resurrected, that Christ was no longer in the tomb. I'm also reminded of Paul's preaching, especially to the church at Thessalonica. Paul and his fellow missionaries went into the city of Thessalonica and they proclaimed the gospel. And in his words, he preached not in word only, but in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he says that the Thessalonians received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Amazingly, they turned to God from idols, from their idols to serve a living and true God. Now, can you imagine just for a moment a gospel preaching ministry so effective that dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands, immediately turned to the Lord Jesus? This describes the apostles' preaching ministry. The apostles preached the resurrection. They preached a risen Savior. Therefore, uh, if Christ was not raised from the dead, this would have been all in vain. It would have been empty. Beloved, all Christian preaching is rendered ineffective if Christ was not raised from the dead. If there's no bodily resurrection, our preaching is in vain. If, if our preaching doesn't include if, if your gospel preaching, that is, doesn't include the resurrection, it is ineffective preaching. It doesn't work. We mustn't wait until Easter to preach the resurrection. We must preach a risen Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly, who, who is reigning on high, alive and well today. This was the content of Peter and Paul's preaching along with the rest of the apostles, and it was incredibly effective. It was not vain. This, this leads us to the third disastrous consequence that there is no bodily resurrection for believers. Our faith, our faith is an empty faith. Look at your text, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. This follows with 
from the last consequence. Said another way, if our preaching is ineffective, then your faith is empty. All of those who believed at Pentecost and beyond, their faith was not real. When Paul preached at Thessalonica, their professed faith would not have lasted. The proof of the gospel ministry has never been. Let me, let me make sure you get this. The proof of gospel ministry has never been the initial response of people, but whether the first persevere in the gospel to the end. In 1 Thessalonians, just to exemplify this, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1, Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. You see, Paul, what Paul is saying here is that the proof of his preaching wasn't just that they initially turned to God from idols. The proof of the effectiveness and the truth of their preaching and the effectiveness of their ministry was that they were still serving a living and true God. You see, this was the proof of the gospel's effectiveness. We cannot then separate the gospel from the emptiness of Christ's grave. Brethren, we preach an empty tomb. Let me say it this way. We know that our Lord and Savior is no longer on the cross. His dead body is, has, was laid. His dead body was removed from the cross, it was wrapped in burial cloths, and it was laid in the tomb. A stone was placed over the entrance, and guards were posted. But we also know this. He didn't stay in that tomb. It was impossible for death to hold him in its grips. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Beloved, our faith rests upon this incredible truth. Beloved, our faith is a true faith because it is based on the empty tomb. As Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, our Lord was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his body undergo decay. Church, oh church, the resurrection is absolutely the centerpiece of our faith. Adrian Rogers puts it this way. The, re the resurrection is not merely important to, the his to histor say, say it again. The resurrection is not merely important to the historic Christian faith. Without, without it, there would be no Christianity. It is the singular doctrine that, that elevates Christianity above all other world religions, end quote. Brethren, you guess that what Adrian Rogers is saying is, is that, that the doctrine of the resurrection differentiates Christianity from everything else. It makes our faith a true faith. We, we worship a risen Lord. We worship a Lord who is no longer on that cross and he is no longer in that tomb, but he has been resurrected and he is in heaven. He has ascended to be in heaven with the Father. Leads us to the fourth disastrous consequence if there's no bodily resurrection. Look at your text. We are liars, number four. We are liars. Look at your text. Paul writes, 
verse 15. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Again, we must be reminded that Paul is arguing for the bodily resurrection of believers. He is using the resurrection of our Lord to prove our own coming physical resurrection. In verse 15, he flatly says, we are liars if the dead are not raised. If believers are not raised, then Christ was not raised. This would make us false witnesses of God. As such, we would be preaching a pack of lies if Christ was not raised from the dead. That's Paul's point. If you deny this truth, then you're saying then, if you deny the truth of the resurrection of Christ, if you deny the truth of the bodily resurrection of believers, then you are saying that every witness of the risen Christ is a flat-out liar. Peter is a false witness. The twelve are all phonies. James, he was a deceiver. The five hundred, they are all frauds. Paul was a false teacher. If we say that Christ was not raised from the dead, if we say that Christ did not remain in that tomb or did not was not raised from the dead, then we're saying that they are all a pack of liars who per perpetrated a false message. Beloved, we are, we know this can't be true. We know that it can't be true. It's interesting. Chuck Colson claims this. He says this about Watergate. He was involved in the Watergate scandal and actually served time for it. But he says this, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, end quote. Colson goes on to say, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than anything we believe. By his resurrection, Jesus proved that he is who he says he is. Be confident in this truth. Stand on the holy word of God. Don't sell the world a false bill of goods. Preach the word, defend the faith, live the faith, end quote. What Chuck Olson is saying is preach the resurrection. Christ is risen. Christ the Lord is risen. This leads us to the fifth disastrous consequence that there's no bodily resurrection for believers. If there's no resurrection, then you are still slaves to your sin. Look again at your text in verse 17. He says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Here Paul doubles down on the worthlessness of our faith if Christ was still in the tomb. If Jesus is dead, our sin debt remains unpaid, and we remain under sin's dominion. We are slaves to sin. If there is no resurrection life for Jesus, then there is no new life for us. The blood of Jesus atones for our sin because he is now alive, having defeated death. We must recall that death is the consequence of sin. God warned Adam in Genesis chapter 2, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will surely die. You will surely die, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Adam disobeyed God's command, and he fell into sin. Therefore, he faced certain death. You see, sin 
both earns death and it births death. It earns death. That's Romans 6.23. And it births death. That's James 1.15. Therefore, death is what sin chooses, receives, and deserves. Now, we live in this life as if death is familiar to us, yet foreign. We witness death all around us, yet we are repulsed by it. Death is as certain as our birth, yet death never feels natural to us. It feels wrong because death is wrong. Sin and death do not belong in our world. You see, God set eternity in the heart of man. Therefore, death is our enemy. The resurrection then proves that death has been defeated. The resurrection is the proof of our salvation because death was the proof of our sin. Let me say that again. The resurrection is the proof of our salvation because death was the proof of our sin. Jesus' resurrection declares to the rulers and authorities that the curse of sin and death has finally been broken. Sin has been conquered. Therefore, the resurrection proves that our sins have been fully atoned for. We have been given eternal life in Christ. I've said many times that Christ's death has purchased us back from the slave market of sin. If, but if Christ was not raised from the dead, then he had no power over death, and he had no power to buy us back from that slave market of sin. But he is risen. He has, in fact, been raised up from the grave. This leads us to the sixth disastrous consequence. If there's no resurrection, then there is no eternal life. If there's no resurrection, then there is no eternal life. Look at the text. Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If you have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Put simply, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then those who die have perished never to return. Did you remember the 500? And Paul said that some of them have, many of them still live to that, to that day. Some of them have perished. Well, those who have perished, would never have returned. But if we live in Christ, if we live for Christ, suffering for him, then we are in the most pitiable position if there is no resurrection. In effect, Paul is saying if there's no resurrection, then we should live out our days to the fullest here. He reiterates this in verse 32. He says this, if from human motives, you get that, if, if I had a motive from a, from a human point of view, if from human motive I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, listen to this, verse 32, 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, why would I give, this is what Paul is saying, why would I give my life for the cause of Christ in this life only if there is no resurrection of the dead? Here's the deal, beloved. Here's the, here's the deal. The tomb is empty. 
He is no longer there. Our Lord Jesus did not undergo decay. As the early Christians said, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And if you believe in the finished, the completed work of Christ, including the resurrection, then you will be resurrected with him. This was Paul's, or this is Paul's entire argument in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, or chapter 15, 1 through 19. Our own bodily resurrection, beloved, our own bodily resurrection is as certain as our Lord's. Eternal life can be yours by faith if only you would believe. Listen to John Piper. John Piper saying it as only John Piper can say it. He says this. The gospel is the good news that the everlasting and ever-increasing joy of the never-boring, ever-satisfying Christ is ours freely and eternally by faith in the sin-forgiving death and hope-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ, end quote. If you're listening today and have yet to believe in him, your hope is fully on this world. The world is passing away and all that is in it. There will be, in the future, there will be no more sin and death. There will be no more tears and sorrow. If you don't believe in him today, I beg you to repent and to turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior. I beg you to come to Christ. Oh, come to the, to the living water. Come and he will give you drink. Don't reject him. Don't turn away from him. Oh, unbeliever, only those who are dead and there's trespasses and sins. Let me make sure you understand this. Only those who are dead and their trespasses and sins would deny the promise of eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord. It saddens me when people choose to continue in their sin in the face of God's eternal wrath. You know, the events of these past few weeks should serve as a warning. This world is passing away. This world is broken. I beg you, I beg you to consider anew what Christ has done that he is risen, having defeated sin and death. Let me speak to the believers for just a moment. Oh, believers, I know this life can be difficult. So let me leave you here with the words of Paul. Let me leave you with the words of Paul. He says this in Romans 6, 8, and 9. He says this. Now, we've, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Believer, beloved, Christian, we believe that we will live with him in this life. But even more so, we will live with him in life eternal. That we will be with him in life eternal. And all the sorrows of this world will pass away. He says this in verse 9. This is Romans 6, 9. He says this. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, 
death no longer is master over him. Beloved, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only has he risen from the grave, but you will be raised with him as well. That is a promise that is as certain as the sun, even more certain than the sun rising tomorrow. That's a promise that we can believe, that we can trust. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. I pray for those who are not believing. I pray for those who are denying the truth that has been presented today. The proof that our Lord Jesus truly did go to the cross and die for our sins and that he was risen, that he was, that he was laid in the grave, and yet the grave couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep its grip on him, but he was raised from the dead and now has ascended after appearing to so many people and has now ascended to the Father, to you, Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your ministry of going to the cross. Thank you for dying for our sins. Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption. May we truly believe. I pray for those who deny that they would consider anew, even this morning. They wouldn't let today go by without considering and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Thessalonians did, that they would turn from their to God from their idols and they would serve a living and true God for the rest of their lives, and that they would serve him in eternity, living with him in eternal bliss. Father, we thank you and praise you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.